0: Did you know that Alchemist Accelerator can operate a program for you? Welcome to Innovators Inside, the podcast for people working in corporate and government innovation. Brought to you by Alchemist X, the corporate services division of Alchemist Accelerator. Here you'll follow me, Rachel Chalmers, head of Alchemist X, as I talk to the industry's highest achievers and most compelling thought leaders. These are fly-on-the-wall conversations with leading practitioners in the field. They'll share their lessons learned so that you don't have to go through the painful experiences that they did. So sit back, relax, and get ready to level up. I am so thrilled today to welcome Jennifer Kim. Jennifer was employee number six at Lever, the groundbreaking recruiting software company where she'd held every role from strategy to product, to customer success, to chief of staff. After leaving Lever, Jennifer founded startup recruiting bootcamp which aims to revolutionize how tech companies hire. She's also a prolific startup advisor and writer on tech culture. Jen, it's a joy to have you on the show.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having
0: me. I'm excited to be here. I remember back in 2014, Lever landed on the recruiting space like an asteroid. Can you talk about what drew you to the company in the first place and what that whole hypergrowth experience was like?
1: Oh boy, how to summarize, you know, the up and down roller coaster? Of a startup it's hard to do and i'll try to try to keep it short yeah for me personally i was drawn to the recruiting space and i honestly imagine i'll be in, in recruiting in some kind for the rest of my career because i truly believe it's the most important thing that i can work on i think about just you know the level of collaboration that's possible but also the inefficiency of kind of the current landscape all these startups all these businesses that have these grandiose goals Yet, what do we do? How do we spend all of our time? It's people problems, it's hiring problems. So I think there's a lot of room to really improve and get it right. So back in 2014, I think I was a little bit maybe idealistic enough to think maybe software will solve this problem. I have a slightly different, more nuanced point of view now, but overall, you know, it was an incredible run. Um, I was a super early employee, helped on every single team, (laughs) wear a lot of hats as you do, And really got to see this kind of new renaissance in HR tech start back then. Boy, things are hot now (laughs) in a way that it wasn't uh, a few years ago. It's something that, you know, not only just kind of on the growth and business side, it was an incredible experience that I wish everyone could, you know, get to get a taste of at least. But for me personally, it was a huge personal growth, the professional confidence that I got from it, the impact that I got to feel of it. I think... That's what makes me such an enthusiast for startups and people management, culture, all that good stuff today.
0: Well, that's a a credit to the founders because a lot of people who have been through that exact kind of hypergrowth experience walk away from it damaged and bitter because the downsides of the roller coaster can be very down. Can you talk about how they managed to to navigate some of those pitfalls?
1: For sure. I mean, I know it's one of those, there's just a survivor bias. And when we talk about startup lore, right? Like it's so easy for us to talk about the ones that succeeded, the ones that reached a certain valuation milestone and vast majority that's might not be the case. I think though for me what's become really important is looking at really career as a long-term journey and while I am incredibly proud of the team that you know we built and the product that we got to build there your career can't just be like that one company you join that makes or breaks everything we're all playing lottery with our careers in tech let's be real Something that was really cool was even though it was my first time in a tech startup ever, I was just given a lot of trust and freedom and reign to really run the organization side of things. So the other, while the other founders were focused on the kind of the building the product and the growth and go-to-market side of things, I was just given a lot of independence to do everything from our actual internal hiring to management, scaling, uh, culture, and diversity, equity, and inclusion. I've come to come to believe that it really has to be the combination of all three. You you just really have to nail all three of those elements to build a uh, to really fantastic startup.
0: Yeah, I know that's what keeps drawing me back to early stage companies. I mean, they're chaotic and insecure, but you do have the autonomy. You have the leverage. You can you can actually make a difference. You can make decisions that have a positive impact on on the direction of the company. And once you've had a taste of that, it's really hard to go back to a large corporation
1: Yeah, something I think a lot about as a philosophy since I have no other real ho- you know hobbies besides thinking about recruiting and startups. Um, I wish I was exaggerating but I'm not. Um, you know it's very actually recent in terms of like human development, labor movements that our jobs have become so... Finally, scoped it's really kind of like that assembly effect where since the industrialization our jobs are kind of becoming smaller and smaller and smaller that mechanization specialization and what i love about startups and why i think so many people love about startups is that not all of us at, at all times but there's something really special about getting to feel entrepreneurial in your work and not while everyone has the means, the access to capital or whatnot to start a company. I think joining an early stage startup and really being part of that journey really is the closest thing possible to helping you feel like within a structure, within still working a team, but you get to do lots of different things, which I think is what a lot of humans are really wanting to do. It's just that our most of our jobs are not set up for it.
0: That's really insightful. And I think it's why, you know, one of the big, Untold Secrets of Silicon Valley is, is graduates of liberal arts colleges with very generalist humanities educations tend to do quite well, particularly in early stage, because those people tend to be very curious and adaptable. But what you're talking about is a little bit the flip side. There's something really satisfying if you are one of those curious people in getting to satisfy that curiosity in more than one specific domain.
1: There's a reason, I think, especially with younger generations, we're seeing this huge trend towards kind of rejection of the corporate life and more towards whether it's a creator route or some kind of entrepreneurial. I actually have a young, much younger sister who is a 21-year-old. She's in college. So she tells me about all the trends that are kind of going on, whether it's drop shipping or, you know, really just <laughs> random arbitrage opportunities that are really appealing to students because for them, the alternative of that droning, corporate, never-ending, sit at a desk, do work that you don't believe in, make somebody else rich just isn't appealing as it used to be. Well, maybe it never was. So I really think that, you know, kind of coming, coming back to full circle, why I really care about this work is that startups have this opportunity to really understand that about workers and provide working environments assemble teams that here come work with us instead and let's have our goals aligned so we can both win and it doesn't just have to be um, this yeah you know, one or the other like either you'd like take this like huge risk and kind of go like full hustle culture uh, this like endless entrepreneurship route which is you know great in some ways but also very very difficult path or the alternative is you're a corporate drone forever <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah, it would be nice if if there were some way to to do meaningful work and, and have that autonomy without, you know, continually dangling over the, the precipice of precarity. I like your platform. I, I wish to subscribe to your newsletter.
1: <laughs> subscribe to my brain. You know, I'm on you know I'm on Twitter. <laughs> that's what that's for.
0: For all of the impact of Lever and, and the companies like it of that generation that really transformed HR Tech. The space is legendarily difficult to get right. What keeps drawing you back to, you know, one of the most difficult fields in software?
1: Oh my gosh. Yeah, I mean it's it's notoriously difficult. I think from having gone through a lot of the hard lessons at Lever, you know, it really gives me a lot more clarity. Also, you know, that's why I really love advising uh, HR tech startups now because I get to ho- hopefully help them skip some of the, you know, the mistakes and the hard lessons faster just a couple of generations ago when Silicon Valley was just really emerging. It was really all about the tech. If you have the means to build something, you can make a ton of money, you, can make a, you have a ton of impact. And then we realized, okay, it's not just having the product. It doesn't necessarily sell itself, especially if you're in a competitive market, you know, sales, there's a lot of uh, value in it. There's actually a lot of educational and organizational challenges to navigate through. So I think maybe, let's say, 10, 15 years ago, one generation ago, that's when investors, kind of the startup ecosystem really started focusing on, oh, we need to train up our, let's say, founders from technical backgrounds on our sales and business skills as well. I think we're at the kind of the precipice of this new focus coming that's really around people, organizations, management. It's so funny because whether it's investors or all these kind of industry leaders that came up 20, 30 years ago, they might not actually have necessarily the skill set required for this work because they came up in a generation where this work wasn't necessary to actually build a successful company. But because of, you know, the gifts of the internet, we have competitions in a way that sprouting up in ways that we just couldn't have ever predicted. So really, what's becoming an advantage is, can you hire the right talent? Can you actually retain them in this competitive market in this very fast moving world? Can you actually assemble the team that's able to see around corners, bring different strengths, pivot as necessary? All of this these are people challenges. And to me, that we're never going to be able to solve for it perfectly because humans are inherently messy and there's no way we can automate you know, all of this. But there are lots of ways that we can definitely make an improvement around just some basic standards that we seem to be struggling with to this day.
0: I honestly couldn't agree more. My three unicorns that I was lucky to invest in were all founded by women. And two in particular, Launch Darkly and, and Honeycomb, have really consistently led with diversity because it lets them see around corners. And that even trickles down into the kinds of software that they're building. Launch Darkly makes it so that if you make a mistake in a, a code rollout and it brings the website down, you can just roll it back. It's, it's incredibly forgiving software. Honeycomb builds observability, which is about seeing things in multiple dimensions and being able to ask questions from multiple points of view. So they actually, the character of the leaders and the designers expresses that breadth, both in, in the technical implementation and in the team they put together around it. And and that's what has made them so successful.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. And I would imagine that, you know, that pattern that you're seeing, we're only going to see it grow larger from here. Diversity, equity, and inclusion is another topic I can go on for hours. But, you know, especially in the startup context, is really interesting to me because I can see why a lot of, again, kind of the more traditional tech mindsets have a hard time grasping you know, really the, the idea of diversity, not just for kind of like tokenism or visual elements, but for the company that you're trying to build. The reality is our image, our stereotypes about what makes a, you know, quote, technical person is not very coming from like a diverse background, right? It was the folks who had access to computers when they were growing up in, you know, the 90s and so on. It's just that that's not what the world looks like now, yet when we think about hiring, it is so, you know, in some ways like still outdated in our image of what folks should look like. So unless we actually take hiring, management, scaling practices just as serious and consider it an intellectual rigorous activity, just like with any other practice, we tend to kind of fall back to these uh, mental shortcuts, biases that really don't end up helping us because it's preventing us from seeing truly like the talent and the applicant pool that's possible.
0: So what are some of the emerging best practices for startup recruiting? And how can innovators encourage and propagate them?
1: Yeah, so I, you know, like you mentioned in the intro, uh, teach a whole course around this. But one thing I'll talk about is, you know, how common it is for the, the one, I would say the number one challenge that founders, let's say they came from a larger environment. So they were, you know, an engineer at Google was the Palantir of the world and they start their startup. So the access they had to their hiring process when they were an engineer is actually a very, very narrow part of the entire recruiting funnel product, however you think about it. You have an entire almost invisible infrastructure of not just teams, but the employer brand, the compliance aspects of it the interviewer training, all the different coordination that's required. So, you know, you you show up on, you know, a few interviews a week and you think you know what you're doing with hiring. (laughs) (laughs) But then, you know, we take you out of that environment, plop you into a blank canvas, and you're like, okay, your job is to go hire. And you're like, Okay, let's go start interviewing. The number one challenge that I, you know, the mistake that I kind of see startups making is like, oh, you know, what are you doing to improve your hiring process? Nine out of 10 times, they'll tell me about, you know, like, oh, you know, we're really trying to figure out what interview questions to ask, right? Like, or that's the question that I I receive the most. Like, what question should I be asking my VP of marketing? And I'm like, oh boy, okay, let's back up. (laughs) We need to talk about top of funnel like how are we actually going to draw in the right people? How do you know what you're looking for? How do we plan for this role so that it's actually matched to a business impact? That's another really key point. Uh, every role that you should bring on should be clearly tied to defined business outcomes and goals. And of course, there's going to be you know, room for updates and change and conversation. But if you as a startup don't define roles, oh boy. Disaster (laughs) abound.
0: I've been brought into organizations where there was no definition of success for the role that I was in, and it is an exercise in... Existential frustration. What are you supposed to do? How are you supposed to prioritize your time? There's there's no right answer.
1: So at every kind of point of the employer, new hire of the hiring cycle, you can see problems that happen from not defining the role. So not only during in interviews, uh, people get really distracted because you don't actually know what you're looking for. So I see a lot of startups kind of uh making mishires, unfortunately, because they ended up hiring the person that was able to speak most confidently not necessarily who's actually ready to you know, do their job and is, has a relevant competency skill set. And like you mentioned, even after someone joins, somehow even like miraculously, I've hired the right person. There's no onboarding, there's no management. So they're just kind of, you know, you're spending a lot of money and salary and a lot of runway for them to feel very like, well, what am I actually supposed to be doing with my time? I'm so empathetic <laughs> why this happens. I don't blame anyone. One, it's because, you know, no one really teaches them (laughs) and no one really tells them it's one of those things that you have to kind of go through the hard way a few times (laughs) until you realize oh maybe we should actually write a job description two for most founders for early stage folks it's very rarely anyone's kind of full-time job it's something that it's hard to carve out time for but it absolutely requires it but unless you go for the training unless you're told how to do it shown how to do it how are you going to do it
0: when you look back on your career to date, what are you proudest of?
1: Yeah, I mean that's a great question, and maybe you're giving me the kind of the invitation to toot my horn a little bit. You know, I think it's really hard to recognize good people work. It's not quantifiable. It's hard to rank across you know different companies. You know, if I were in sales and I led revenue to X million, and it'd be so easy for me to go here, look at my number, be impressed. <laughs> So instead, I think a lot of my uh, sense of accomplishment really does come from personal and qualitative data. I look at just the you know the company I helped uh, build within lever and I know just the unique experience that employees told me over and over again, even the ones who came from much larger environments that were you know much more built out and have more resources that it felt special that there was a difference when someone is really leading the internal culture and operations that someone really cares and thinks through everything. Yeah, so I'm just remembering one story where an employee came from Box and they were, you know, thousand plus at the time and they were being onboarded by us. And he made a comment like, man, like our onboarding process here is like way more built out and there's like so much more going on here than Box in some ways. And my founder pointed out, like, yep, that's Jen. Jen's built everything. (laughs) So for me, I'm a... I'm a a natural teacher. I genuinely love kind of assembling teams and helping them facilitating really insights and collaboration. I like to think that I transferred a lot of those skills to doing things like building the recruiting boot camps now, especially because I got to have that professional confidence of, oh, this is what's possible when you actually put a lot of care and thought into it. Just, you know, applying a product mindset to a field that doesn't usually get that kind of attention.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's there's so much in what you say that, that we could dig into, you know, we're developing these product mindsets through customer discovery and the lean startup and bringing these holistic people-centered skills to people who are traditionally from engineering backgrounds. We kind of need to to flip that around as well and get them to apply the same empathy and insight to to building out their own teams because their company is a product too. The company is the product that they're selling to their investors. So all of those, we call them the soft skills, but we're trying to shove the language over to calling them core skills. These core skills around team building, around centering customers in, in product design, not taught in engineering courses. And we we have to backfill those skills into the valley, into the tech industry to make sure that innovation is human centered.
1: No, I, I really like the frame of you know soft versus core skills, since obviously I'm coming at it from the the soft, (laughs) the soft side. (laughs) No, but I think, you know, by labeling skills as, you know, hard versus soft, there's an implication that one is more important than the other. And I just don't think that's true. And we can trace back so many of our industry's problems and biggest challenges to this mindset.
0: Yeah, and not only our industry, I think... I think we measure things that are easy to measure and we ignore the negative externalities. So going back to your example of if you were a salesperson, you could point to the number. The number doesn't say how many of those customers churned. It doesn't say how many of those experiences were, were detrimental to the brand because because it was the wrong customer. and They had a really poor experience and that's you know a micro example of the macro example where we we measure economic growth without factoring in pollution and and the social effects of of growth at all costs and uh, of the extractive industries so you know this shift from soft to core skills is 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 not only about correcting the course of the tech industry it's about correcting the course of of how we assign value to things in this world
1: what might feel like a radical point of view i imagine in whatever 10 20 years we'll look back and be like oh of course that was what needed to happen and one of the most encouraging factors to me is we look at younger generations you know really millennial gen z are going to be demanding this out of corporations so what feels like you know maybe very contrarian and you know rebellious, I think it's just going to become like, well, duh.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's it's another of the unsung joys of, of working in super early stage is you get the generational diversity and working with people who are much younger than me and don't have my 25-year checkered background in, in, in the industry definitely keeps me enthusiastic, keeps me optimistic about the future. Okay. Now you get a do-over. You get to go back and, and make a different choice at some point in your career. What would you do differently? I don't
1: know if I would necessarily literally do anything differently because everything was happening because I was doing the best I could and if I change anything I would end up in a different place. I think it's more helpful for me to look at some of the patterns around some of my more tactical mistakes so you know small things oh I wish I could have done this differently or that differently and really look for what's like the underlying pattern. For me personally that would probably be around really confidence and owning my work earlier so I was a First time head of people, who was way too young, but are we all in early stage, you know, startups in many ways. And I think there's a way that I didn't know how to really claim my work. I also didn't know how to be on an executive team for the first time. It's something that very few people are actually prepared for. (laughs) And what to do with that kind of power when all of a sudden you're, you know, for, for a long time you're working with just what feels like friends, you know, 20 people sitting around a conference table to like, oh gosh, we're a real company with layers and titles and new people coming in all the time. So there's a way that I, for I'm sure many reasons, whether it's personality, the fact that I'm a woman of color, so many things, I'm an immigrant didn't really know how to claim a leadership spot in a way that I would do very differently now. I was sometimes kind of a little too eager to hide behind a spotlight, let others present my work. And, you know, I think a lot of that makes sense because this is why we talk about how important representation is in the diversity, equity, and inclusion sense. I think there's a way that I just haven't known a ton of leaders who look like me, who whose also styles align with mine. So I didn't know what it really meant to step up and do my work in a way that's not just, you know, I'm proud of it, but here's how I can show it to really supercharge my own work.
0: You touch on another really subtle point there. It's really hard and also completely essential to find a model of leadership that is is natural to how we relate in the world and yet impactful and also recognized as impactful. It's It's a hard needle to thread.
1: Yeah, ever going journey, for sure. And that's why I continue to be so passionate about diversity, equity and inclusion. Again, not just for the, you know, it's been proven over and over again. It's good for business, but the impact that it has us on individuals and communities.
0: I've got a shout out here to Mythic Quest. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a show on Apple TV, but it's it's set in a game studio and there's a character in it who's played by an Australian actress who's a woman of color. And it's probably the only time I've seen that specific journey, a, a person stepping up into her leadership role and, and finding the style that suits her portrayed in a way that's that's really recognizable. I think you'd really dig it. It's a very funny show. Very cool. Yeah, I'll check it out. How would you distill all of this experience into one or two lessons for our listeners?
1: I think a lot about advice as someone who, whether I'm qualified or not, dole it out on, in my writing, in Twitter, on Twitter and so on, but... You know, I do think advice and lessons are so personal. The context really matters. So whatever I say might not be right for anyone. But if I reach a handful of people for whom that really resonates, all the better. So I would say the two kind of lessons for me are one is even in the most high profile, high powered companies, all the hype and positions and titles, everyone is a human. There was a way that when I was younger, I didn't know that the relationship with power, how you attain it, how you maintain it, it's a really personal experience for everyone that it's a very much a journey. And there are folks who really take that seriously and kind of constantly do that introspection, um, adjustment as they go. And then there are people who just assert their power because they can. And that's often what creates for very toxic and even maybe like abusive work environments. Yeah, I just didn't know when I was young. I don't think you do actually when you're young, um, how to distinguish that. It's so easy to assume, oh, this person has this title and this company, they must know X or they must be able to do Y. That's not necessarily true. Maybe the biggest concrete example of this is before uh, startups, I worked at the Stanford Business School for about a year. And while I had a really wonderful experience really getting exposed to so many things I didn't have at the time, Probably the biggest thing that I learned was really around that even Stanford MBAs for whom I thought before I started that job were kind of like a different species of me. Because I didn't grow up with these folks. You know, I didn't know people who went to Harvard. So when I was there, I remember first being very intimidated, like, oh, these people are like so important and serious. And then a few months in, we realized, like, oh, these are just regular people, for many of whom, don't get me wrong, were incredibly talented and brilliant and I'm sure were gonna be ruling the world. But also, there were plenty for whom I could say, um, how do I put this in a nice way? Oh, your parents had a lot of money.
0: Mm, Room for growth.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right, like, oh, I can see how you got here. And if I had certain access, you know, and had different choices and guidance, I can see I could have ended up here too, which is that we had different, you know, life paths. So I think that's really what gave me a lot of confidence around I can take a lot more risk in my career that I didn't know was possible at the time because everyone is human. Everyone, you know, we're all just actually big, big adult babies walking around trying our best all the time.
0: When we talk about diversity, I think it's easy to gloss over what actually it is that diverse teams bring to the table that homogeneous teams don't have. And I think it ties back to what you were saying about power. If you've never had power exercised against you in an arbitrary way, you don't know to be careful about how you exercise power. If you've had, you know, a dream run through a prep school to Stanford to a really great job in industry, you cannot really understand how power is weaponized. When I talk to founders who grew up on the streets of Oakland, they know that intimately. They see every potential abuse of an algorithm, of a, an approach. And that is concretely the perspective that is needed on teams that are making these kinds of decisions and is needed as we think about how humans exercise power going forward.
1: Wow. Yeah. Really interesting. I do think we're in like a cultural shift about it too, in that power as a language is becoming a little bit more mainstream. I mean, what is anything that we're talking about in you know the political landscape right now but really about power and who's been allowed to have it who's had access to it and now that the world is opened up in ways that are truly bonkers if we like actually stop and think about it um what do we do in this messy transition so yeah that's really really interesting
0: And this is what's fascinating to me, just to take a slight tangent, about the resurgence of traditional ecological knowledge. Because you look at the work of people like Suzanne Simard talking about the wood wide web and these mycological networks that underpin heterogeneous forests. You know, that work reflects what, Indigenous people already knew about the interrelationship between entities in our ecosystems. So we can pursue these destructive monocultures where the soil gets less and less fertile every year, or we can explore this this heterogeneity. And it's not just a metaphor, it's literally a description of how ecosystems work.
1: Yeah, I, that's so fascinating, especially how more of these ideas will become, I, w- I would hope, integrated into the business world, because right now they might feel a little bit out there. But clearly it's not working in a way that is just not sustainable.
0: Speaking of sustainability, how do you avoid burnout?
1: This is another topic that I thought a lot about and I do appreciate the opportunity to talk about it because I'm also fairly open about having burnt out really, really brutally a few years ago to the point that I really felt like my brain was broken. It felt like I was gonna be forever broken. And now that I'm a few years out, I truly can say that I am, you know, thriving and recovered in a way that I didn't know was possible. And I'm actually even better than how I started because that burnout was an opportunity for me to really dig into previous patterns that I wasn't looking at, you know, really invest in things, tools like therapy and self-care. So yeah, much easier on this side of burnout, but I have a lot of empathy for folks who are going through it, you know, have been in it for a long time. So maybe that's kind of like the first thing, a very kind of simple, like, it gets better. <laughs> because I think the thing about burnout is when you're in it, like, it really feels like you might be in it forever. And I wasn't that safe for a long time. And, you know, if it helps for anyone to hear that, like, you will get out of this, it's not going to feel like this forever. It definitely does feel like it, but I promise it will not. I think there's a, a few things we can go down here that are the biggest lessons for me from both my experience, but also talking to a lot of people going have, who haven't gone through burnout. So one is I think we really need to get honest about what the cause of burnout is. There's a common misconception that it's about just the number of hours that you're working, right? But that's really actually about physical exhaustion, which is a different phenomenon than burnout. While of course, both have overlap. Burnout is more about it's it's definitely got a lot more emotional factors tied into it, where it's when something is not working, but you keep pouring from an empty cup when you are a very competent person who is used to fixing problems and you're some kind of environment where it's not actually more of your energy that needs it's just you you can't fix it but you keep trying which is why you get burnt out there's pressure that gets built up that's going to be that takes a long time afterwards to unwind yourself from so I do think common understanding around this is going to be really important because sometimes I hear advice around like oh I'm burnt out or you know that means I should take two weeks off and you know you're surprised when it doesn't solve your problems immediately unfortunately one of the biggest things that I worked on in the last few years is really with my relationship with rest it was something that was foreign to me as a you know self-identified very hard worker who was always go 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 on and on But really recognizing that that is not how humans run and we are not machines. We need periods of rest. It wasn't healthy for me or really for anyone to have our brains go as much as we are going. So even to this day, I sometimes find something in me will feel guilty about taking rest or, you know, pushing off things when I know it's right. But really observing that in myself, recognizing that pattern and building a new relationship with rest has been super, super key. And then three, the last element I would say is around just community and finding environments, work that does align with your values. So I've been working for myself in the last few years, ever since I kind of went like the startup advisor route. The primary reason was because I wanted to work with lots of startups instead of just one and really prove up my proof of my thesis but the second element really has been the freedom and the choice to choose who I want to work with and what kind of work I want to do and it's something that I feel so privileged to do you know my job is to be myself and find others who align with my values and I think that's probably been a really huge contributor to not burning out again since having been burnt out I have like a you know I'm at risk for more episodes of it. So I definitely, of course, find myself in, like, coming up again in small ways. But whenever I come back to values, uh, you know, am I working with who I want to work with? Do I need to turn down this client? Do I need to fire this client? But also finding mentorship, uh, support from folks who are on similar uh, values-aligned journeys always helps me ground myself back.
0: That is really good advice. Thank you.
1: Again, whoever I can reach and help, uh, wherever they are in their journey, it makes me really happy.
0: Speaking of, what is the best way for our listeners to connect with you or to follow your work?
1: Yeah, as mentioned, I'm a quite a prolific writer on both LinkedIn and Twitter. I'm at Jen is Typing, and yeah, I like to write about not just more of the practical elements of my work, which might be hiring tips, you know, management, diversity, equity, and inclusion. But some of the best feedback I get around is really about tech culture and kind of the more human elements. So, you know, I feel very lucky to get a lot of DMs and emails from, especially young folks, uh, especially really the Gen Z who reach out. They appreciate the way the way I talk about working and surviving in tech. That can be a little bit rare. So I very much enjoy part of that work and hopefully maybe we'll write a book someday about it.
0: I would be the first in line to buy it. (laughs) What does the future look like for you, both personally and as you look at our industry?
1: I feel very privileged to get to say this, but I'm really, really enjoying what I am doing now. You know, there's, again, that practical element of meeting companies where their immediate needs are, which is around hiring. So I get to run these boot camps a few times a year, really build a community experience, uh, impart my knowledge, but also learn from them. I love doing kind of like the executive coaching element of my work because it helps me feel really grounded to individuals that I think are also very representative of the industry. So I just absolutely adore the founders, heads of people that I work with. Don't tell them that. I'm trying to keep it cool. (laughs) And I really do think whether it's kind of this like HR tech renaissance or the Gen Z trends HR management, uh, a need for just more, you know, in a way that really uh, people are looking for substance, they're ready for conversation, they're ready for real diversity, not just kind of the tokenistic diversity. I feel like we're just at a really interesting point in our industry right now. And in the meantime, I just plan on posting sassy tweets and throwing a lot of shade and growing a community so that maybe we can start to take over for real when the time is right. Oh, I just revealed my secret plans.
0: (laughs) I am completely on board. Is there anything else I should have asked you? Yeah, no, I think that was it.
1: I just really enjoyed this conversation so much. Jen, it's been an
0: absolute delight. I hope we can have you on again sometime in the future.
1: It's so great getting to reconnect with you, Rachel. And yeah, thank you so much for the platform.
0: This has been Alchemist X Innovators Inside. You can find the transcript of this conversation, plus links to whatever books, articles, TV shows, and apps we talked about on our blog. And stay connected by following us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. If you found the podcast valuable, feel free to share or tell your colleagues. We love hearing from you. Send us your comments, feedback, suggestions for future guests, or just say hi by emailing us at innovators at alchemistaccelerator.com.